episode of The Sweaty Penguin is brought to you by air conditioners. Do you want to survive climate change without actually doing anything? Buy an air conditioner today. Welcome to episode 52 of The Sweaty Penguin, Antarctica's hottest podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Brown. It is Friday, June 9th, and we've got a super important one for you today. You can subscribe to The Sweaty Penguin on Apple, Spotify, Google, Podcast Addict, wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to leave a five-star rating and a review, and you will get a shout-out at the end of the show. The other way to get a shout-out? Join our Patreon. For as little as five bucks a month, you'll also get access to some Sweaty Penguin swag exclusive bonus content, and more. You can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from PBS flagship station the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. Today, we are talking about hurricanes, the reason you should never piss off a scientist at the World Meteorological Organization. Look, I don't know how they pick the names for those storms, but seeing how tainted the names get, I'm guessing none of them have a best friend named Katrina. I mean, with the number of hurricanes now, I bet all you have to do is cut a scientist in line at Cinnabon, and they'll be angrily adding your name to the list of hurricanes. But speaking of Atlantic hurricane names, scientists are going to need a lot more in the coming years. The system used to be that the first hurricane of the year got an A name, the second a B name, the third a C name, and so on until the whole alphabet was used up, excluding Q, U, X, Y, and Z, because apparently scientists aren't creative enough to come up with names starting with those letters. Seriously, just Google names that start with Q. I did it, and there's dozens. If they somehow use up the alphabet, they'd start naming the storms after Greek letters. So we'd have Hurricane Alpha, Hurricane Beta, and so on. But after 2020, when there was a new record of 30 named Atlantic hurricanes, news outlets learned that the World Meteorological Organization had met and decided that the Greek letter names weren't going to work anymore. For six straight years, Atlantic storms have been named in May, before the season even begins. And now the World Meteorological Organization is making some changes going into the 2021 hurricane season. The committee met yesterday, and one of the biggest takeaways is that the WMO ended the use of Greek letters. Starting this year, if there are more than 21 Atlantic storms, the next storms will come from a supplemental list. After nine hurricanes in 2020 were named after Greek letters, the WMO scrapped the Greek letter names. And the fact that news outlets like this one were covering a World Meteorological Organization meeting of all things should tell you just how telling this decision is. This means the WMO now expects we could see seasons with over 21 hurricanes often enough that there would start to be too many storms with the same name. At this rate, hurricane records are going to be almost as confusing as kindergarten attendance sheets. I mean, how is it that in every kindergarten class, at least four kids are always named Michael? If there's three, we can at least say Michael, Mike, and Mikey, but with four, you gotta start differentiating with last initials. 
Now, the WMO actually reuses their lists of hurricane names every six years, so they clearly don't mind a little repetition. And that makes this change all the more newsworthy. If they're doing away with Greek letter names, they're expecting that years with over 21 hurricanes are going to become a norm. But why the change now? Why are there suddenly so many hurricanes that the World Meteorological Organization is revamping their naming system? Well, as I'm sure many of you know by now, having listened to the podcast, climate change is making these intense rotating storms a lot worse. And today, that's what we're going to cover. How climate change is affecting these storms, what that means for our environment, economy, and security, and where we might go from here. But first, a few semantics. A rotating storm whose surface winds max out at 38 miles per hour or less is called a tropical depression. When the winds fall between 39 and 73 miles per hour, it's called a tropical storm. When the winds exceed 74 miles per hour, it's called a tropical cyclone. Tropical cyclones then are broken up into a few categories too. In the South Pacific and Indian Oceans, they're called cyclones. In the Northwest Pacific, they're called typhoons. And in the Northeast Pacific and Atlantic, they're called hurricanes. So even though we might hear different words for these storms, they're basically the same thing, like cheese pizza and margarita pizza, or Ryan Seacrest and Joel McHale. Cyclones, hurricanes, and typhoons are all types of tropical cyclones, and tropical cyclones, tropical storms, and tropical depressions are all types of swirly, windy water. Once we're above 74 miles per hour, we break the tropical cyclones down even further using what we call the Saffir-Simpson scale. This scale breaks the tropical cyclones into categories, with category 1 being winds of 74 to 95 miles per hour, category 2 being 96 to 110, 3 being 111 to 129, 4 being 130 to 156, and 5 being 157 and above. 157 miles per hour. That's almost as fast as a dog who hears the word treat, or a person who hears the word treat. So now that we've got the vocabulary out of the way, let's discuss how the storms actually form. Contrary to my Facebook feed, Earth is a sphere. And as I'm sure you know, Earth rotates. But picture how that looks on a globe. If you're on the equator, one day or one rotation of the Earth means you have to go a really long distance. But if you put your finger on, say, Greenland and rotate your globe, that rotation is a much shorter distance since it's closer to the top of the sphere. If you put your finger on the North Pole and rotate it, your finger won't move at all. So what that means is people and stuff on the equator are actually moving through space faster than stuff up north or stuff down south. Now, let's say an area of low pressure forms in the Atlantic Ocean off the coast of Florida. I'm a cloud by the equator. I'm chilling out, eating Doritos, and watching house hunters. Where am I going to go? Well, I'm going to go north, into the area of low pressure. But because I, at the equator, am moving faster than the low pressure system by Florida, I'm going to end up overshooting it. My momentum is going to swing me in front of the low-pressure system. And if I'm a cloud north of the low-pressure system, I'm going to want to go south into the area of low-pressure. But because I am moving slower than the low-pressure system by Florida, I'm going to end up undershooting it, and I'll actually swing behind the low-pressure system. 
So we've got clouds swinging in front from the south, clouds swinging behind from the north. And now they're swirling together, creating those counterclockwise rotating winds that we think of when we see a hurricane or cyclone or typhoon on a weather map. In the southern hemisphere, it works the opposite way. Clouds moving south from the equator would overshoot, clouds moving north from Antarctica would undershoot, and you get clockwise winds. This phenomenon, where the Earth's rotation causes objects to swing in one direction or another as they try to move north or south, is called the Coriolis Effect. And I wanted to take a moment to explain that because one, it's how tropical cyclones are formed, two, it's really confusing the first eight times it's explained to you, and three, because it's confusing, there is a weird number of people out there who have decided that they're going to debunk it. Okay, so this is for all of those who still believe in the Coriolis effect. Here we got a double sink, right? Um, I'm living in Canada, so technically both sink is supposed to uh, go down in uh, the same direction, right? I wish I could play you the whole video so you can see this guy dump a bunch of oregano down his sink, but basically, he pours water down his drain and expects that with the Coriolis effect, the water will rotate counterclockwise down the drain. In theory, he's actually right about that. But of course, it didn't in the video, so he feels the need to post a video titled Coriolis Effect Debunked and lead off with the phrase, for those who believe in the Coriolis effect. And first off, can you imagine having the confidence to end a science experiment by saying, huh, science must be wrong. I'm not saying scientists never evolve their thinking as they gather more data. I'm just saying I took high school chemistry, and I'm pretty sure I messed up every single lab we did, and not once did I think, I'm right, science is wrong. But more importantly, tropical cyclones work a lot differently than your sink drain. At that small of a scale, the Coriolis effect will be really weak because the front of your sink and back of your sink aren't really rotating around the Earth at different speeds. Maybe by a tiny bit, but not by enough to outweigh other influences like the geometry of the sink, for example. A bowl-shaped sink is probably going to behave differently from one of those weird flat sinks at a fancy restaurant. So as much as I wish an at-home experiment like this demonstrated the Coriolis effect, I hope you can join me in understanding that no, the Coriolis effect wasn't debunked, and in fact is the reason tropical cyclones happen. So how does climate change play in? Well, climate change creates conditions that lead to worse storms, and that happens in a few ways. First, climate change leads to increases in sea surface temperature and air temperature, causing tropical cyclones to intensify a lot more quickly. If you remember anything from high school physics, you'll remember that your teacher will tell you to ignore air resistance in every problem, throwing an egg off a roof won't be messy if you use enough bubble wrap, and heat is energy. The fact that heat is energy means storms brewing in warmer oceans with warmer air will pick up speed a lot faster. In fact, a 2018 paper in Journal of Climate projected that the number of Category 3, 4, and 5 tropical cyclones would increase by 20% globally and 29% in the Atlantic by 2081 to 2100, and several other papers found similar results. Second, climate change leads to sea level rise. As we've discussed before, climate change warms the ocean water, causing it to expand, and melts glaciers and ice sheets, which adds water to the ocean. 
All of that leads coastlines to creep inland, which gives tropical cyclones the opportunity to travel much further inland than they otherwise would. If you imagine a day in which you have a sea level rise, a high tide, and a tropical cyclone, that can become horrific. I mean, that combination is the perfect storm. And third, climate change leads to increased rainfall. The warmer the air is, the more moisture it can hold. That doesn't necessarily mean it does. Just say the word dry heat to anyone from the American Southwest and they'll have 20 minutes worth of anecdotes for you. But in the case of a tropical cyclone, where we're looking at actual water swirling in the ocean, you can bet the air is holding a ridiculous amount of moisture. We actually saw this play out during Hurricane Harvey in 2017, where Texas experienced an unprecedented 60 inches of rain. 60 inches! The rain is tall enough to ride any roller coaster it wants. Hell, the rain might be even tall enough to do okay on a dating app. Sure, it won't clean up, but it'll get a date or two. And after Hurricane Harvey, an article in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences calculated a six-fold increase in the probability of an event of that magnitude since just the late 20th century. Does this mean climate change causes tropical cyclones? Well, that starts to become a tricky question. We've known that climate change is making tropical cyclones more intense for over a decade, but to say climate change is causing a specific storm is a whole other beast. Even as recently as 2017, scientists didn't really have the tools to attempt that question, as University of Georgia's Director of Atmospheric Sciences, Dr. Marshall Shepard, explains. I'm very uncomfortable talking about causation of one particular storm in the same way that I can't identify what particular home run was hit uh, by a baseball player because of steroid use. I think that we know that steroid use likely increases the probability or chance that there will be more home runs in baseball, but can I conclusively say that that particular player hit that particular home run because of steroid use? I don't, I don't know that for a fact. And we've actually talked about this on the podcast before. This clip was from 2017, and at the time, that was the end of the story. Scientists knew climate change made tropical cyclones more intense on the whole, but as Dr. Shepard explains, they couldn't point to a specific storm at that time and say climate change caused it. But now, that's changing. In 2018, a new field of climate science called attribution science started to emerge, where scientists weren't necessarily asking the question, did climate change cause this tropical cyclone, but did ask, to what degree is climate change influencing this tropical cyclone? A 2018 article in Earth's Future directly linked the record rainfall during Hurricane Harvey to record high temperatures in the Gulf of Mexico. And a 2019 paper in Geophysical Research Letters made similar connections for Hurricane Maria. So even in the four years since that interview with Dr. Shepard, science has advanced from shying away from causation completely to actually developing some models and tools to understand it, showing just how far this research has come in the last four years. So if climate change is leading to more Category 3, 4, and 5 tropical cyclones, what does that mean? Well, We've talked about some of the effects on the environment before. It can damage important ecosystems like coral reefs and seagrass meadows. 
It can destroy oyster beds and crab habitats, and displace fish and other marine species affecting food chains. And it can push saltwater into freshwater ecosystems on land, making them uninhabitable, dump sand into new areas suffocating insects and other animals living there, and bring sewage and untreated chemicals back into the ocean. And all of that barely scratches the surface of the environmental impacts of tropical cyclones. And we've got episodes such as Brownfields and Superfund Sites, Vanilla, Seagrass, the Great Barrier Reef, Mangrove Forests, Sea Turtles, and more that address some of these issues in more detail. We've also talked about some of the economic impacts before. According to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, Hurricane Laura in 2020 cost $19 billion dollars. Hurricane Harvey cost $125 billion. Hurricane Katrina cost $161 billion. In fact, the total cost of damages from weather and climate disasters from 1980 to 2020 added up to $1.875 trillion. You heard that right. $1.875 trillion. If you added up Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, and Richard Branson, you'd still be $1.5 trillion short, and you'd also still not be kicking it in outer space. Seriously, guys, why is it your lifelong dream to float around a tiny spaceship trying to poop out gross space food in zero gravity? Being in space sounds cool, but once you think about it for more than three seconds, it gets really disgusting. And that $1.875 trillion number is increasing fast. The NOAA also reported 50 weather and climate disasters in the last three years, with losses exceeding a billion dollars. And keep in mind, a lot of these losses require our tax dollars to clean up. So even if you're not in a part of the country that gets hit by tropical cyclones, you're still feeling their effects. But beyond the environmental and economic costs, tropical cyclones pose a massive threat to anyone who lives within their vicinity. According to an article in the Bulletin of the American Meteorological Society, one out of every five or six Atlantic Basin tropical cyclones caused loss of life in the United States. Seeing how these storms are intensifying, that statistic is terrifying. And for those who are fortunate enough to survive, their lives can be completely upended. Just listen to these Houston residents share their experiences during Hurricane Harvey. Clothes, shoes, furniture. I got to start all over again. Our apartment, we had over six feet of water. My car, I lost it. This is a truck, and this is my car here underwater. I lost everything. And I, I, I was praying and hoping that it wasn't going to be this bad, but it was. And to hear just how frustrated and dejected these people sound is heartbreaking. To lose your car, your personal belongings, and even your house or apartment to 100-plus mile-per-hour winds and six feet of water is not an experience anyone should have to endure. And it wasn't just these three people. Over 30,000 people were displaced by Hurricane Harvey, and a full year after the storm, 8% of the people impacted still had not been able to return to their homes. A study in environmental research after Harvey also found that racial and ethnic minority households and lower socioeconomic status households experienced disproportionately more flooding at their home sites than white households and higher socioeconomic status households, making these tropical cyclones all the more devastating. So where do we go from here? Well, 
There's really two types of solutions here, mitigation and adaptation. Mitigation refers to actually stopping climate change, and I won't get into that here since we talk about that basically every week, but these are the solutions like cutting greenhouse gas emissions, preserving ecosystems that suck carbon out of the atmosphere, and yelling at your uncle for buying a Jeep Grand Cherokee. Adaptation refers to figuring out how to actually live with these more severe tropical cyclones. And this is important too, because even if climate change is mitigated, even if we stopped emitting carbon tomorrow, these storms would still continue to worsen. It's like quitting in the middle of a burrito eating contest. Yes, you should probably quit, but you'll still be on the toilet for the next century. Just like mitigation, adaptation has a slew of solutions too. First off, there's a lot that can be done to support individuals and communities when they get hit by tropical cyclones, whether that be building emergency shelters, coordinating evacuations, distributing information and aid, and assisting in the rebuilding of people's homes. A lot of that currently falls to the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, and while FEMA has certainly been helpful, they've also faced a lot of very valid criticism. As we discussed in our Earthquakes episode, FEMA has disproportionately provided aid to white and wealthy communities over low-income and minority communities, with Hurricane Harvey being a prime example of that. And during Hurricane Maria, FEMA was extremely ill-equipped to support Puerto Rico, having just emptied emergency supplies from a Puerto Rico warehouse days before the disaster. Obviously, having a federal agency dedicated to these responses and recoveries from natural disasters is promising, but there's certainly a lot of room for improvement as well. People can also get support from insurance companies. Well, they can if they're willing to stay on hold for an hour. Seriously, Geico could have just said 15 minutes on hold could save you 15% or more on car insurance, and I'd be impressed that they can take my call that quickly. The possibility of using insurance is especially promising in the case of businesses who might want additional protection for themselves. However, according to co-founder and chief product officer of the Demex Group, Stephen Bennett, insurance companies still need help with this process. This is where, where our company comes into play, is to help businesses recover following an extreme event. So businesses can't control the weather, but the weather doesn't need to be an excuse for um, for uh, poor financial results. So what we do is we work with insurance companies to help companies, uh, to help businesses recover after an extreme weather event. Stephen Bennett later says that his company helps insurance companies place the risk of these storms and calculate premiums. And to me, that's a little concerning. I'm glad to see here that insurance companies are working on this now and consulting with experts, but the fact that this sounds like such an in-progress concept in 2021 is telling. In fact, even today, insurance companies aren't really set up to cover tropical cyclone damage in one fell swoop. In addition to homeowner's insurance or renter's insurance, one would need to purchase flood insurance for water damage and windstorm insurance for wind damage. That's three policies, just to cover damage from one storm. On top of that, there can be named storm deductibles and hurricane deductibles too, making the process all the more complicated. Given just how severe hurricane seasons have gotten in the last few years, the fact that insurance companies are so poorly set up for this and need to rely on companies like the Demex Group for help still is certainly a bit unsettling. There's also a lot that can be done in coastal communities on a larger scale. 
Sand dunes and levees can be built as sort of barriers from hurricanes and simultaneously help adapt to sea level rise. Reforestation initiatives near coasts can also create a barrier that helps protect communities from tropical cyclones. And perhaps the most effective barriers are coastal ecosystems themselves. Marshes, mangroves, and coral reefs all act as natural obstacles to coastal erosion, storm surges, and wind damage caused by hurricanes. And on top of that, they're full of important species and they suck carbon out of the atmosphere. In fact, a study in Integrated Environmental Assessment and Management, which assessed the feasibility of natural engineered and hybrid risk mitigation to tropical cyclones in Freeport, Texas, found that incorporating natural ecosystems into risk mitigation plans could reduce flood heights and ease the cost of building defenses in the future. Seeing as these natural defenses are both more effective than man-made ones, and they already exist, this sort of preservation avenue could be promising. And look, I know that all of this information I just threw at you is probably a bit overwhelming. Given just how catastrophic tropical cyclones can be, it's honestly not possible to address anywhere close to adequately in a 40-minute podcast. But I hope that at the very least, this introduction to tropical cyclones and climate change is useful in understanding what to expect in the summers to come, and by setting our expectations correctly, we can hopefully both prepare better and take action to improve the situation for the future. Because if we do, we'll save lives, protect people's livelihoods, improve the environment and economy, and ensure we never get to a point where there's so many hurricanes that three of them have to be named Michael. Do you hate hot weather but love cheeseburgers and pipelines? If so, air conditioners are for you. With an air conditioner, you can watch wildfires, hurricanes, and floods ravage the planet from the comfort of your very own home. What's more, air conditioners use a lot of energy and sometimes even release hydrofluorocarbons, which have a huge climate impact, meaning you'll help the planet warm even faster. But hey, you're not warm, so who cares? Air conditioners, because when you're down in the dumps, nothing cheers you up like having a big fan. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from PBS flagship station the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. Welcome back to The Sweaty Penguin. With me today is Dr. Susanna Camargo, the Marie Tharp Lamont Research Professor of Ocean and Climate Physics at Columbia University. Dr. Camargo, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So first off, I found your career journey really interesting when I learned about it, going from plasma physics all the way to tropical cyclones. Could you share a little bit about your background and how you ended up changing research interests to become a climate scientist? Originally, I was trained as a physicist, and uh, first in Brazil and then in Germany, and my focus was turbulence and plasma physics. Uh, That was the top of my research. Uh, If you know something about plasma physics, we are trying to confine plasmas, which is like making a star uh, on Earth and get energy out of it. You know, ultimate objective is uh, fusion for energy purposes. Uh, So I did that for many years. And then my husband is American. We decided to move to the U.S. 
And then we were trying to figure out what we were going to do. And uh, Columbia had just started this new institute, International Research Institute of uh, Climate and Society. They gave me an opportunity to change careers. So I went in, I didn't know anything about climate or atmospheric sciences. And I really, you know, start over again my career, which was challenging, but was very uh, interesting and very rewarding to uh, starting to do more applied uh, research focus, um, focusing more on things that can actually, you know, directly impact people and uh, going from very theoretical (laughs) plasma physics to now making plots in the globe and seeing how that can influence, you know, the United States or Florida or uh, other countries. That was really a big change. It seems from what I've read that hurricanes, cyclones, and typhoons are all sort of different words for the same thing. And the main difference is where in the world they occur. Why are there the three different words? Is there any difference beyond location? No, that's a historical reasons. Uh, so the hurricane, it has, you know, these roots in the Caribbean, where typhoon comes from a Chinese word. So it's really based historically each of these uh, countries and, oh, you know, their population was ex- were experiencing these storms and they gave their name in their language to define them. And that's how it came about. They're all the same type of storms. So from what I understand, you and your colleagues were some of the first scientists back even before Hurricane Katrina, finding a link between climate change and tropical cyclones. How did that idea come to be? What led to that hypothesis? And what kinds of things were you doing in your initial research to assess it? So when I started doing this field, in this field, as you mentioned, very few people were working this connection between tropical cyclones and climate. There were a lot of people studying hurricanes and like the very detailed parts of uh, the hurricanes and making forecasts. And uh, then there were people doing climate, but there were very few people trying to connect them. And uh, I was working on seasonal forecasts of uh, tropical cyclones. These forecasts start in the 80s, first in Australia by, by the, that region uh, by Neville Nichols and the Bill Gray started uh, in the in the U.S. for the Atlantic Basin, but they're all statistical forecasts. So they're just based on, you know, the data you have, and then you try to see how they relate to the environment. There were no what we call the climate models were not involved because which you know have all the physics and all the equation that describe the atmosphere. So what we were trying to do when I started uh, working at Columbia was to develop forecasts that were not based on statistics, but based on these models that have the full physics of the atmosphere. It was challenging because these models were not very good at representing the tropical cyclones and uh, because it costs 
a lot to run these models that have all the details of the, the, the hurricanes and you're doing climate and seasonal forecasting, we can't afford that. Uh, now it's getting better and better because we're having better, better computers, but we're approaching that. But at that point was still very challenging. So I was doing that work and looking at different modes of climate that affected tropical cyclones, uh, in general, specifically typhoons and Atlantic hurricanes. And it was, you know, very clear next step to see, okay, how is climate change going to affect that? There were already a few papers on that. And then we had a visitor at IRI, a very preeminent scientist called Leonard Bankston. And he was like, you guys should, you know, try to do more on that. And he suggested we organize a workshop on that topic. And uh, that was, at that point, we're like, well, it would be a small workshop with the very few people that are working on this topic. And we start organizing. And then, you know, Katrina happened. And two big papers on this topic appeared that were prominent in the media. And the whole community started discussing this topic, very controversial at that point. That was 2005. And then suddenly our workshop was the focus of all this attention. And all these people came and a lot of media attention. So it was really not what we had planned, but how it worked. And then from there, you know, my career expanded continue to focus on those, uh, on these topics. And you mentioned that during that early research, there was a bit of controversy in the scientific community around uh, this idea that climate change was affecting tropical cyclones. How long did that last and what did it take to bring the scientific community on board? So the controversy was not if it's going to affect it. The question was if it's already affecting or not. And that was the main issue that can you already see that's affecting and there were these two papers saying yes we can already see some signal that's affecting and some people are saying oh no the data have so much problem that you know the data sets have so many uncertain much uncertainty that we cannot say that yet so that was the main thing and that's a problem that we're still grappling with because the tropical cyclone data sets have lots of problems uh, because if you can imagine, if you go back to the beginning of the century, how do you know that there was a, a hurricane? Only if that hurricane, you know, affected, uh, you know, some people either on land or in, over the ocean. And then uh, how do you know uh, how intense was that hurricane? You know, if maybe the center didn't pass through that island or stuff like that. So we know as we go back, there's more and more uncertainty, uh, especially out of the Atlantic, you know, in between the U.S. and Europe, there's a lot of ship traffic that they were, you know, if there were these storms, they were probably affected. The people on, on the ocean, though, besides, you know, lots of people living in the U.S. coast, uh, you know, and in the Caribbean and Mexico. So we wouldn't have, was, you know, especially the ones that affect land and affect the, the islands, we wouldn't have completely missed. When the ones we probably missed, the one more in the eastern part of the Atlantic, so the discussion when those papers happen is like, 
with the data that we have, is the data good enough for us to see these trends or the uncertainty in the data is too big for us to say that that was the main issue was not that the people had any doubts that would eventually uh, affect tropical cyclones or not. So it's actually two different things that people actually put together. One is that, can we say if it's already affecting and what is like detection and attribution part, which is very, uh, relies heavily on data. And the other thing are the projections, which is like, you know, of course it has to, data has to be part of it, but they're most rely on climate models. So, you know, if we have these issues with data, um, that's a real problem to do the detection part. Uh, and that's not only tropical cyclones, for instance, tornadoes, it's, you know, even, you know, orders of magnitude worse than tropical cyclones. And, uh, you know, we really trust our tropical cyclone data. We we think, you know, it starts in the satellite era, especially after the 80s. But if you want to look at a very small trend of something changing, you would like to have a much longer data set with many more years. So that's what the issue is. How big of a role does ENZO play in all of this? I know ENZO affects hurricanes, but climate change also affects ENZO. So how do we assess ENZO's impact? Oh, you got there on a big problem that, you know, actually I have a grant that we're studying that point exactly. So, yes. So we know that climate change affect tropical cyclones. And we know also that, you know, ENZO, El Nino Southern Oscillation, affects tropical cyclones globally in different uh, regions. Uh, the impact of uh, ENZO on tropical cyclones is different. We are more accustomed to what happens in the Atlantic, but for instance, the Western Pacific is a very different way that affects uh, the typhoons. It's more like you have the intensity of typhoons and the location, not you know the number of typhoons, for instance. So first of all, there is a lot we don't know of how climate change affects ENZO. And uh, my colleagues uh, at Columbia University actually are proposing that the climate model's response to climate change in regards to ENZO might be uh, wrong because when you look at, they don't match what has been happening in the observations. So, so that's a point that's like, you know, current state of the art of research that we are trying to investigate. And then you can imagine so that, you know, we have a different way that, you know, climate change affect ENZO that would also change how that's affecting the tropical cyclones. So that's uh, exactly a, you know, very important point to try to understand. And we, that's what we're doing right now. We're using different models. We're doing, using machine learning, using all kinds of methodologies uh, to try to understand and try to see if we can untangle this problem. But I can't give you a response because that's what we're doing research right now. Hopefully in a few years, you can give me a response to that. Yes, that would be great. <laughs> absolutely. Um, so I know your work is more on the science side, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. So I was in Connecticut last summer and we got hit by Hurricane Isa ES in August. And 
It was definitely the real deal. It hit our sound editor, Frank, in Puerto Rico the week before and came all the way up the coast. I was out of power for a week, which was the same amount of time as we had no power during Hurricane Sandy. And afterwards, A, no one I know in Connecticut took ECES as a cue to talk about climate change. And B, none of my friends in other parts of the country, even as close as Massachusetts, knew that Hurricane ECES had happened. So... I looked up the storm after, and it w- it was a lower number grade than a Sandy or Florence or Maria, but do you feel like there's sort of a hurricane fatigue in the public or more awareness at least needed about each hurricane that happens and what the climate uh, relationship is? What I think is there is a <laughs> lack of preparedness in regions that are not hit all the time by hurricanes. So if you go to South Florida, you know, they are very aware of the hurricane season that they should prepare, they should be looking uh, towards that. But, you know, a place like Connecticut, they're not hit every year, you're not so aware. So people are more, you know, don't think about that so much and are not prepared. You can imagine, you know, we are talking about all the time how the, uh, you know, climate change, you change the hurricanes, but we don't even have to think about that. Think about Miami. You have one storm now, the same exact storm that we had 100 years ago. Just because you have, you know, many more people living in Miami, many more buildings, more infrastructure, more hospitals, you know, whatever, you know, the impact social and economic will be much bigger. So sometimes I think we have put so much too much emphasis on the, you know, the changes of the storms, which I I love it because that's what I studied, but it's so much, you know, so important to consider the other parts, what we call exposure and vulnerability of, you know, the population that's in the coast. So we have, you know, uh, big uh, disasters with hurricanes and, you know, the funding that's coming to help the people that were affected is going to coming from you know our tax dollars and so what are we going to do uh you know if we keep on building huge houses on the coasts is that how we're going to keep on spending our tax dollars uh, or should we change a little bit make some regulations that you know protect those communities and things like that. It's not my specialty. I'm not a policy expert, but I think that's a huge, huge aspect that's not discussed enough. You've sort of touched on this, but as a scientist, what would your message be to policymakers? Because obviously climate action is important, but like you're saying, there's also a very big adaptation part of this here. Even if we do take drastic climate action over the next decade, you'll still see a lot of change just because of the lagging effects of the carbon we're putting out. So uh, what would what would your message be? I think we cannot think in terms of an or one mitigation or adaptation, or we have to do everything. We have to be working on the individual level. We have to be working on governmental level. We have to be working using mitigation. We have to be funding carbon capture, 
new, you know, technologies, everything. But at the same time, we have to adapt, you know, and think about the people that are being suffering. We know that's that's happening, you know, wildfires in California, storms, hurricanes. So that's happening all the time. So we have really to be acting. I think that really, uh, and the action can't be just focused on only technology is going to fix everything. One solution only won't solve the problem. You know, you have to take every type of solution into account and from every type of policies have to be taken into account. Dr. Kamarga, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for talking to me. This wraps up episode 52 of The Sweaty Penguin. Remember, you can get a shout out right here at the end of the show. There's two ways to do it. One is to leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple or Podcast Addict, like this one from Luke Labernathy. Luke says, I enjoy the Sweaty Penguin. They present a number of environmental issues and discuss what can be done about these issues in very interesting interviews with experts. They avoid being politically divisive and keep on topic. The environment is not a left versus right issue, and there are environmentalists on both sides. I enjoy these episodes and have learned a lot. Thank you so much for that, Luke, getting us our first podcast addict review. The five-star ratings and reviews really help us out a lot to boost us in the algorithms of these apps and help people find us. The other way to get a shout-out is to join our Patreon. And we've got a new patron this week, too, Kathleen McGarvey. Thank you so much for joining our Patreon. It really helps us out. Remember, when you join our Patreon, you'll get not just a shout-out, but merch, bonus content, even a chance to win a signed book from one of our experts. Head to patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin to unlock all that cool stuff and help grow the show. Once again, The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Paralund Promise, a public media initiative from PBS flagship station the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. Thank you all for listening, and I'll see you next week. Today's episode was written by Ethan Brown and Dane Kim, edited by Frank Hernandez, and produced by Ethan Brown, Shannon Damiano, Frank Hernandez, and Caroline Kale. Our ads were voiced by Lindsay Cronin, and our music was composed by Brett Saka. Special thanks to our Emperor Penguin patrons, Lawrence Harris and Brownies Central. Clips today came from WKMG News 6, Quest for Truth, PBS NewsHour, Washington Post, and CBS News.